Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. When you're dealing with uncertainty, the main thing you're trying to drive and change the leader is you're trying to increase the rate of learning. And welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This is a special episode of the podcast from one of our community's live digital events where we got to learn from a leadership expert, best-selling author, and former U.S. Navy SEAL officer, David Silverman. Welcome, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great. Great to be here. Jerry, take it away. So the first question I have for, D- for Dave is uh, apparently we're going through a lot of uncertainties these days in life and work. There are a lot of factors that we're not able to control. So can you tell us a, a story of um, you leading uncertainty, probably a more intense version in, on the battlefield? And how, how do you deal with that? Sure. Thanks, Jerry and Patrick, for having me here. Uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your, and, your, and your audience. Let me take you back to 2005, 2006, uh, Iraq. I, I was part of a team that was working with the Iraqi counterterrorism force. Our goal was to train, equip, and then help them prosecute uh, objectives throughout the uh, the nation. You know, in this case, we're trying to suppress terrorist activities and insurgency movements that were trying to undermine the, the government. And we had settled on, a, on an objective south of Baghdad uh, that we knew we wanted to go after. Now, part of the challenge when you're working with co- uh, partners in this case is you're always worried about operational security and, and, and information control. And in this case, we would involve them in the planning, but oftentimes we wouldn't tell, tell the actual team where exactly we were going and when we were going. So that way there was no way for that information to potentially leak out and thereby compromises coming into the mission. Well, we had picked up intelligence that uh, the objective that we were planning on hitting had, um, had, that had, had information that had tipped them off that we were coming. And so obviously we had delayed the mission a day and said, all right, we're going to pick a different time and space to kind of to, to try to prosecute this objective. And now it's uh, it's we're in the final, so we're we're getting ready. We're loading the helicopters, and we take off. And on the way in, I'm on a headset listening to to assets that are also involved in this objective. So in this case, we had forward-looking um, airplanes and un, uh, unmanned view, uh, aircraft that were had eyes on the objective, kind of watching it. And then we had other people in the intelligence community that were sort of monitoring communications and comms. And uh, about, we're on final approach, uh, I hear that, they, that we've been, that they, we, they believe we've been compromised again based on the chatter they're hearing. And we were starting to get um, word that they were massing in different fighting, what looked like to be like fighting positions. And so at this point, you've got a tremendous amount of uncertainty of 
what it's going to be like when that helicopter ramp drops and you have to start charging at this objective to take it down and whether to abort the mission or not. And so you're basically limited, you're, you're, you're left with as a leader, uh, a series of basically bad options. Okay. You, you, you have uncomplete information. You don't know exactly what's going on. You know, there's some time sensitivity. And at this point, you've got a whole bunch of people. I think we had over a hundred people on this helicopter assault, uh, that, you know, that were, you know, on in this place on final inbound. And, um, you're forced to make a decision. In our case, we decided to continue on the operation. Lucky for us, uh, you know, we were able to overwhelm the objective without taking any casualties. Um, and, and, and for the most part, it, it, it went off more or less as planned. But coming into the situation, we had little, very little visibility of that. So I just remember sitting there saying, I'm about to put a, lot, a bunch of young people's lives at risk uh, based on the decision that I make. And I got an incomplete set of facts in order to make that decision. And so the one thing that you can sort of go back on is you do have confidence and conviction in the capabilities of you and your teammates that you've you developed over the, you know, over the years and months. And so I, my assumption was regardless of what the enemy thinks is going to happen, once the actual fight is, has begun, uh, likely it'll be dynamic and changing fast. And I had a lot of conviction that we would be able to adapt faster than our adversary in the moment and have decisive effects. And ultimately that's what happened. Well, thanks Dave. That's a fascinating story. I want to share the audience like the way we're going to unpack the conversation is really uh, divided in two parts. First, we're going to uh, focus on a few uh, mental frameworks that um, David can introduce to us and help him to uh, on the better front and also in the business world. And then uh, we'll try to cover a few real examples and to give you a better sense of it. Hey, Dave, I know right now everyone's sort of going through a lot of uh, personal disruption given COVID. And uh, as a Navy SEAL, uh, this is something that are probably uh, very common experience. Um, and uh, can you talk a bit um, a little bit more about how do you approach those physical and mental pains? How do you yeah, process them? Yeah, it's a great question. And to everybody out there, you know, if you think about it, uh, the three sort of um, pillars that sort of underpin basic physical and mental security have all been disrupted in the last couple of months, right? So if you think about basic health, your family life and your work life is, you know, three sort of foundational uh, elements that you know most professionals uh, use to sort of figure out you know their stability. They've all been disrupted, right? You know, work we're, we're having to work from home. In some cases, a lot of people have lost their jobs and their livelihood, and have a lot of uh, not a lot of clarity on what it's going to look like in the future. Um, you know, your your family, uh, if you have anybody that's you know sick or 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 is at high risk. Um, obviously, you've got a lot of anxiety. There's there's rules around what you can and can't see, and how you would support maybe extended family members. Or you know, if you you know if you're if you're married with kids, you're finding yourself quarantined, you know, in a house. It could be a small apartment with uh, four people that you love very dearly, but you know, over time, spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week for eight straight weeks is uh, can be a little overwhelming, especially if you have uh, any type of introverted personality. Um, you know, and then last is health. I mean, it's scary. I mean, there's there's more unknown than known about, you know, this virus, how it can impact you. And so it's, you know, obviously I think that's starting to get a little better now, but these three things have been disrupted. So it's very easy to get in a state of sort of like shock, uh, bordering on depression um, and then sort of activity. So a lot of the clients that we've talked to and work with, if, you know, the leaders, they're trying to figure out, well, how do I get, you know, people out of their malars? How do I get them back, you know, on their, on back on their feet again and sort of being proactive about, you know, just attacking their day on a daily basis. Like how are they going to get up every day and attack their day with a swimming sun and conviction and manner to restore back to productivity. And, um, you know, in, in SEAL training, 
um, the, the one common denominator that everybody that makes it, makes it through isn't how physically fit you are. Um, you know, it certainly isn't your, your socioeconomic background because none of that is matters once you're, once you're in the training. I, I think the one thing that you have to be able to do that was compartmentalize physical and mental pain. And uh, what they're going to do is they're going to physically, you know, take you to a place of, of pure exhaustion, regardless of, you know, how, how gifted you are. And uh, they're going to mentally make you have a conversation every day to determine whether you still want to be there or not. And they're going to make you revisit that conversation over and over and over again until they know with conviction that you have the mental fortitude uh, to be a part of, uh, of this brotherhood. And so what you become really good at is compartmentalizing uh, the physical mental pain. You, you, you start thinking in, in terms of, of, of minutes and, and hours instead of days and months. If you step back and said, I've got seven more months of this, again, you start to get a little overwhelmed going, oh my God, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to sustain this for seven straight months. Because, but if you actually think about it as far as, I just got to get to lunch, and then I just got to get to dinner, and then I just got to get to breakfast. Um, all of a sudden, it starts to become very achievable. If you look at any one evolution that you do throughout the training, it's actually not that hard. Right? When you add it up for seven months straight, uh, it, it's, it feels a lot more intimidating. But if you focus just on the immediate task at hand, and you start to go back to your base fundamentals of how you kind of get through it, and you shelve out the rest of it, all of a sudden, you start to get um, you know, some clarity. So I think, to me, understanding how you compartmentalize what's probably coming at you um, is all these different factors, how you basically put those into different boxes and focus on the box that's most important to you right now. Once you get that done, prioritize the other set of boxes and then focus on that next. That's an incredible, important, and valuable skill you have. I think moms uh, and dads that are actively managing kids do this on a regular basis, right? Because the kids, especially when you're home with them for this long, they can, it can be a bit chaotic. So you've got to be able to toggle between things. But you know, the whole idea of multitasking is really a myth. You know, you really have to you know, figure out how you can kind of focus directly on the thing. In order to do that, I think you've got to be able to not get distracted with, with, with the other pains or miseries that might be coming at you. So it's a common skill set that, that they drill into you um, in, in the teams. And what's interesting is when you get down, downstream in the combat or other stressful conditions, you notice very quickly who gets overwhelmed by the situation, who's able to keep their wits. And a lot of it's because they're sort of conditioned to saying, all right, I can, I can figure out the stuff that's actually mission critical right now and focus on that. And the rest of the stuff, I'll, I'll, I'll attack when I need to uh, at a later basis. How do you practice that? I know it makes total sense, but sometimes when we try to compartmentalize the pain, we still got distracted because the the, the potential uh, stress and uh, the other things that are you know coming to our mind uh, all the time. So, what kind of technique do you use to sort of help people to uh, practice that skill and uh, apply it smoothly day in day out? Yeah, it's it, it's a great question. I mean, so. The one way you can look at it is from a solution set. Like I've got to solve a specific problem and move to the next one. And obviously, you know, that's helped. But, but really, really uh, what we focused on a lot, both in the military and now with clients, is how do you establish capability? How do you establish almost like a lifestyle or culture change that enables you to consistently be able to deal with, with, with rapidly changing situations? So I, I like, in the teams, it was all around your ability to shoot, move, and communicate. So you obviously had to be, physically fit and sound. So you weren't, you know, your, your, your physical conditioning was in a place where that wasn't a significant factor in stressful conditions, or at least if, if it was, you were going to have an advantage over, over your adversary. Um, and um, you had to be able to know that your comms and your contingencies were going to work. So you had to have plans that you had drilled in multiple times. So that way, the cognitive load and stress has been reduced. 
and you're able to basically process at or faster than, you know, in this case, the competition or the adversary. So when I think about lifestyle, I think about, you know, almost like personal habits and discipline on a, on a, on a regular basis. So, you know, we, when we went into COVID, I knew this was going to be disruptive to my family. Um, we, the first thing we did is we sat down and my wife and I made a, we call it a battle rhythm, an operating rhythm for our family. We said, all right, we're going to figure out Monday through Sunday, what are the main things we need to get accomplished every day? And then we broke them down to like small segments. Now, to be honest, we're probably pretty far from the original plan is what we set out to do. But the fact that we went through the process of saying, we know this is going to be hard. Let's break it into, in our case, you know, anywhere from 30 to 90 minute segments and, and space those over the course of seven days, we can start to start to get at it, right? Admiral McRaven wrote a book um, who used, you know, was a guy that I, I had served under uh, in the past. Uh, he, he was, the, the, he gave a speech to the University of Texas called Make Your Bed, and he wrote a book about it. And he talks about like, look, if you get up every morning and you, and you just make your bed, right? You have accomplished that small task and feel good about it. And then from there, you can kind of build on that. And I, and I really think that's the same thing. You, you got to compartmentalize your days into small sprints. And each sprint, you basically attack, uh, then you stop, you pause, you reflect, and then you figure out what you're going to do next and you move on again. And, and if you're doing that on a disciplined basis, I think you'll be surprised how quickly you kind of find yourself getting back to being normal. You're able to adjust as conditions change to, to, to you know, what sort of the different stresses coming at you. And, and pretty soon you'll find that your productivity starts to pick back up again. And speaking of um, productivity, I know that uh, a lot of people in your leaders right now, they sort of worry about their, not only their personal productivity, but also their productivity of their organization, their team. So what kind of skills do you have that can help people to focus on to restore and improve productivity right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I was, we have some financial service clients and, you know, if you're trying to understand how the market's moving right now, you can, it's, it's hard because there's, there's no model for shutting down the global economy for eight months and then trying to figure out how to phase restart it. It's just, it's never been done. Uh, certainly not in the modern era. So, you know, there, there is no like predictive model you can do. So you've got to, you've got to put yourself in a position where you're able to test and learn rapidly vice try to prescribe to some specific outcome. So the same thing I talked about from a capability standpoint, you think about personally, you got to figure out how to do that for your team. Now the good news, especially for the software community the engineering community is you, you're probably already classically trained in, in, in agile um, you know, methodologies and practices, which I think lend itself very, very nicely to this type of environment where there's a lot more unknown than known, and you're going to have to make some assumptions. You'll, you, you'll, you'll, you'll focus the team on it for a period of time, and then you'll stop. So the first thing I, I, I suggested uh, to most of these teams is look at your cadence and see if the frequency by which you're, you're reprioritizing is uh, appropriate given how fast the environment's changing. And if it's not, you might consider, you know, upping your cadence. So what maybe, you know, in our case, you know, we do a weekly, um, you know, uh, sort of scrum of scrums or keystone forum, we call it. Maybe we need to do that bi-weekly, you know, for, uh, for now, because stuff's coming at us that fast, we need to make adjustments. Um, or maybe we need to take our daily stand-up and merge it in with the keystone forum and almost do it daily, maybe make it 20 minutes instead of five minutes. And, you know, and, and, and almost that becomes the effectively our, our sprint review and our sprint planning and make it in, in, in day, day cycles. Um, that may work or may not work. It all depends on, on the environment you're in. But I would take a hard look to make sure first your, your cadence matches the environment. Um, and, then this, and, then this, and then the second thing that I would focus on is from a, from a capability standpoint is just trying to increase the overall reps. So when you're unknown, when you're making assumptions, 
um, what one person ended up doing, which I thought was interesting, was he said, all right, I'm going to try to basically build their instincts um, and pattern recognition to be faster than before. So every day I'm going to come up with an objective challenge, uh, in this case, predicting a couple of names and how it's going to respond to the stock market that day. Not that we're going to actually put on a trade or not, but just because I want them to work the muscle of actually going through a plan with some assumptions, see what's working or not. And the idea is more reps will actually start to get them to faster, better uh, pattern recognition on how to base, create normalcy out of the situation. And once you move out of this chaotic phase and back into a complex phase, then you could you could kind of fall back into your more traditional test and learn uh, time continuums, right? So those are the two things I've heard recently that I've seen done that have actually produced some pretty significant results. And the differentiation between, let's say, that team and some of the other teams is the difference between being down 20 or 30% on the year advice being flat to up. So pretty, pretty remarkable uh, difference. Right. You mentioned the daily stand-up, the Keystone Farms. Um, so I, I remember that you mentioned that story in the, in the book as well. Uh, where there are close to 3,000 people that are uh, joined on a daily stand-up, you're able to, um, the organization was able to manage it in a way that's very effective. The people can participate, exchange information. And that was a, a key differentiator that, you know, in the transition from uh, the command control to being agile, uh, name it yours. Can you, can you tell, like, how, how do you, I'm always fascinated to know how that kind of um, stand-up of that size, how do you make that, effective right yeah so um a couple of things so first of all when, when you're dealing with uncertainty the main thing you're trying to drive and change the leader is you're trying to increase the rate of learning across across team members in the organization because because so much is changing so fast if you can't learn quickly you're gonna you're gonna get overwhelmed pretty quickly or you're gonna become antiquated or go away so the whole idea was how do we increase the rate of learning on the key drivers of our product or of our business or of our, of our service that we're trying to provide so that it's it's we're learning at or faster than the competition you're not going to go as fast as the market because that's just not possible but you but but you you want to be you want to be at least as good or better than your, your your adversary in this case and if you can do that consistently you're going to create outweighed results so our individually our teams were you know spread across hundreds of different Ford operating bases and they were then organized into you know, geographic uh, you know, commanders, and then those geographic commanders would go to sort of um, larger geography commanders. And so there was many layers. Every single unit every day did some version of a stand-up, right, where they would sync on the main things that that small team needed to focus on because it was really the key interdependencies were sort of organic to that local team. But what we found was at scale, we weren't learning across teams very effectively, and there was a lot of overlapping opportunities to learn because the way our adversary was learning is they were leveraging social um, collaboration tools like YouTube to basically post key results from last night's operations. Other people would watch and witness that, and they would incorporate that into their 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 mindset. Meanwhile, we're we're still working through a, a very siloed bureaucratic process for information exchange. So we put a meeting in place that was called the um, uh, Ops Intelligence Update that happened every day for 90 minutes. And the, the key goal of it was to cross-level the key insights from the previous night before and then update the entire task force on you know, uh, trends or dynamics or changes that we were seeing in our network as well as in the network we were trying to prosecute that would be of interest. So for me, uh, being a, a mid-level leader in that, so relatively low in the, in the totem pole, it was a chance to understand how other people were prosecuting their respective objectives. If there was key uh, tactics or techniques that were 
that came out from the night before, I, I could immediately go access those, those sort of after action reviews, those postmortems and, and see if it was applicable to us. In a lot of cases, we could then follow up with side conversations to be directly. I also could see where there were sensitive resources or assets and how they were shifting around uh, where you, know, you, know, you don't always have access to. So the extent that I want to try to increase my own productivity, I could having better fidelity around where, where let's say the helicopters were or, or the collection platforms were and who had access to them. I could go work personal relationships with, with those different units to see if I couldn't borrow or piggyback on try to unlock some, in, the, in this case, latent potential you know, with, with, with my local unit. So it became this critical uh, mechanism for us to deconflict and learn. It wasn't really a decision-making forum. What it really did was it helped provide incremental context to leaders so that they locally can make much faster, better decisions locally. So um, the, the added benefit from a leadership perspective was it created transparency. So that transparency you know, uh, had an accountability dual uh, in two parts. One, it was peer-to-peer -peer accountability because I can see if someone's not doing something, I can call them and ask for some, you know, extra help or resources. And then from a leader, it was a chance to say, well, hey, um, you know, why aren't you moving or doing or being like, what are your obstacles or roadblocks and how do I remove them, right? So um, that, that, that sort of forced us as an organization to, to start to unlock uh, our learning potential across the network. And then that allowed us to bring, in our case, decisive effects to bear. So if you're at a company or you're in a business where you know, the sum of your parts is a competitive advantage, right? Um, but you, know, you can't move fast enough, this helped us improve our speed uh, uh, and effectiveness, and then be able to leverage the, the, you know, the, our key differentiators, size, scale, capabilities, technology, talent, uh, and bring that to bear at the same speed as what our adversary was doing. And that was, for us, transformational. I mean, it really unlocked just tremendous potential and, and, and became decisive. Yeah, I remember that one of the, the challenge to come to that open forum of being transparent, there's a, some concerns around uh, sensitivity, like sharing information. And of course, a lot of information that we share is very, on a bit of it is very sensitive. So there's a, apparently a, a trade-off being made. So yeah, uh, can you walk yeah, us through that, the, the trade-off making process? Yeah, you know, it, this old adage of like, um, how much information you should share or not share in large venues. I mean, obviously, if you're in a bigger venue, you're probably less likely to say something that isn't well thought through, prepared, as well as something that you might be to be overly sensitive. And that's 100% true. Um, the trade-off is if you're trying to get a whole bunch of people moving quickly in a certain direction or get them intent or guidance or give them context that they can leverage and use locally to be faster, having to call them all individually to, in, the, in the risk is, is, is just incredibly inefficient, right? So, so we, we found that we had to trust in order to get the speed we need to be decisive. And our thesis was, look, if we're compromised on the information flow, that's fine. It's probably going to change tomorrow anyways. We'll take that and have a bias towards speed versus control. Um, and, and, and that became critically important to us. And the other thing is like, look, if, if people don't handle the information you say in a professional, meaningful way, because there's so much transparency in the system, that becomes very obvious very quickly. And then you can take very, you know, very surgical precision actions against said people, right? Whether it be removing them from the equation or rehabilitating them into to a more appropriate behavior. But, you know, the idea that like, you only need to know what you need to know. Well, how do you know who needs to know what? I mean, it was just unclear to us. And because the, the environment was so interconnected, you know, how did you know that the, the, the person working on research and development back in North Carolina doesn't have something that might be applicable to a problem set that I dealt with yesterday, last night on the battlefield. And the fact that I could connect those people 
through this forum on a real-time basis said, all right, now I can potentially drive innovation solutions much, much, much faster because I'm that much closer to the end user on, 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 on what, what they need and what they're using. And so I can, you know, make a better product. I can, you know, implement a you know, better code. I mean, whatever it is. But like, that's, that to me was the benefit. You have to, map, you have to marry that with like meaning flow. But what we found is when you put a, some type of scrum a scrum or keystone form in place where there's known interdependencies between the different components of, 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 of different teams, uh, doing that probably the same speed and cycle as you're doing your sprint reviews uh, usually leads to much better outcomes in the long term. Um, it, it, and it reduces a lot of meetings. And so in our case, we found about 20 to 30% reduction in that meetings by having this one thing that we did that deconflicted across uh, the teams. And that's usually just within like, you know, uh, development or implementation teams. If you think about this outside of that with like, you know, sales or marketing or, you know, research and development, other elements that, you know, could have say, well, now all of a sudden you start to say, well, what's the appropriate cadence for that to, for us to, to synchronize on what they're seeing and learning, because it's relevant to how I might think about approaching you know, a different problem set. So we found this to be critically important in an age where things are changing fast. And that's very relevant to the, to the business world. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. These days, a lot of people are uh, really wanting to learn about, um, people talk a lot about the peacetime leadership and uh and wartime leadership so um based on your experience um what do you see the the differences yeah you know there, um there's a great book that ben harwitz wrote called the hard thing about hard things if you haven't read it i'd recommend it ben harwitz from andreessen harwitz you know sort of a famed entrepreneur uh one of the you know top investors uh he, he talks a lot about this dynamic uh, so i won't i won't i mean you should probably go read that segment but as i sort of extrapolate that into how i thought about the differences in styles that you observe on in combat or like very stressful conditions versus when things are stable or more peaceful or a high growth environment. Uh, it, 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 it's pretty, it's pretty different. And most of the books you read and the management philosophies you learn about are really designed for peacetime. It's like, how do you find and become your best self by creating your awareness, improving your competencies and applying that, um, you know, treat people as you want you to be treated ways, right? And the assumption is, look, in these type of environments, this is how you unlock the most potential uh, in an organization. So they tend to be, you know, things around collaboration and empathy and the rest of it. In, in war, uh, the problem is things are coming at you so fast that you, you, don't, you don't really have that luxury anymore. And so what's really important in wartime or, or, or environments that are highly stressful and changing quickly is you, there, there has to be some degree of decisiveness from a leader. And then the idea is, you're trying to figure out how to push that down to other leaders so that they can be decisive at their level as well. But oftentimes, if you think about chaos, you really almost need a novel practice to, to solve the problem where in complexity, you, you need an emergent practice and in, and in like complicated or, or simple problem sets, you need, you see the best practice. And in best practice, you can implement all these, 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 these sort of mindsets of, 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 of collaboration. And the other ones, you really need to be able to, to test and learn quickly. And then ultimately somebody has to make a call and sort of drive the team forward. So, you know, I, I found that um, 
you know, what people look for in times of uncertainty is someone that has conviction, right? Do you have conviction on where we need to go? Because when, when you're taking artillery rounds on your position, you don't really care where you run. You just got to stop. You don't want, you know, you just don't want to be there, right? So if someone says go left and you're like, and everybody says, all right, let's go left. Well, then, then that's going to be better off than staying where you're at. And you don't really get a time to sit there and say, well, I think we should go right. You know, right mics make more sense. That, no, no. When you're taking fire, you just got to move. Right. And so what we, what we used to say in the SEALs is that we would do these things called immediate action drills where you're walking along and then you're compromised and they're coming at you and you gotta, you gotta basically immediately react, kind of stabilize some defense, and then you gotta start moving. And so they try to put a lot of pressure on the, on the senior NCOs and then the junior officers to make quick decisions quickly under pressure. And you go back to that compartmentalization, like how do I figure out the thing that matters the most right now? Focus on that. And then ultimately what we said was, look, a, 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 a bad plan, well executed, beats every day a great plan, poorly executed, right? So instead of taking the extra time to make a great plan, just start going. And it, once you get some movement, then you can actually adjust uh, to where you need to be. So if you make the first call and it's wrong, you say, all right, well, let's figure out a tango out of this thing and, and keep momentum. But you, you got to create momentum. The, the analogy I, I, I would use because I come from the Navy is, is like a ship. If you're dead in the water, and you're, you're yanking on the rudder, you're not going to go anywhere because you, you got, you got no, you've got no steerage coming across the bow of the rudder, so you can't adjust. So get moving, even if you end up going in the wrong direction. Well, now I can see it's the wrong direction. I can adjust my rudder and move, move the boat and get to where I need to go. But without any forward movement, you're, you're, you know, it's, it's sort of OB. So I, the, the adage I use as a leader to think about this was really something they teach you early days of any like, boot camp for the Navy, which is ship, ship made itself, right? So the first premise is when you're on a ship, if the ship's under fire or taken on water, if the ship doesn't survive, you're all dead anyways. So you got you to save the ship. So every, everything first is about how do you keep the ship afloat? So that could be your business. That could be your team. You got you to do what you need to do to survive uh, and, 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 and potentially over win the mission. Nothing else really matters, right? Then once you've got some of that stabilized, you can start to think about the second thing you think about is your teammates, your shipmates, right? So if someone's hurt, if someone's stuck, if someone has a roadblock or obstacle, how do I remove that to help them be more productive? Because if everyone's doing that, we know it's going to have a compounding effect at the ship level, right? At the organizational level, be effective. And then the last thing you do is you worry about yourself, right? Which is comes down to the things we talked about at the beginning of this discussion, which was how do you put personal discipline and rigor into your system that, so that you can show up and be your best possible self on a daily basis to help solve your problems. But if you don't go in that order, especially during times of crisis, the likelihood of you being effective is going to be, is going to be pretty pretty poor. So in wartime, I think that adage is a, is a set of guardrails that you can use pretty loosely to help inform your decision-making process. And, you know, where you, you obviously want to be inclusive at you know, really what people need during times of need is someone to make a decision and to move out. And then we can later retrospect and see, was it a good decision? Was it a bad decision? How to make it? But if, but if, as long as you're following the adage, I'm trying to save the ship and I'm trying to help out my teammates and myself laugh, people will forgive you for the mistakes you make. And that's, that's my experience. Because they believe you operate with genuine intent and trying to do what was best in a, in a, in a, in a decision-making hierarchy uh, that has you at the last. And that's, that, that's what's most important. Do you have an example that you're helping a business to adopt that kind of mentality? You know, we, we've got clients in the energy space. And um, if you're in energy, this is like a double black swan moment, right? It's like you've got COVID, which has basically affected, you know, uh, productivity and output. Um, across the globe, which is great for the environment, by the way, but, but, but if you're in the, you know, if you're in anybody's trying to produce energy, 
or in, is in any way, shape or form, it's not good, right? Because you're, you're seeing like historic lows and needs and wants, right? I mean, everybody can look at the oil and commodity prices as a reflection of that. And the second thing is there was a price war between two of the largest state sponsors of, 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 of oil and gas. And so that further exasperated, which was already a low demand signal. And so all of a sudden they're looking at projections that are, I mean, look, there's going to be a ton of bankruptcies in this space uh, that aren't going to survive this and just in North America alone. Um, and so really what the, the, the goal that I've had talking to the senior leadership teams is, all right, your entire plan that you had is, is, is basically null and void. Um, pretty much your investor base has written you off at this date. They've said nothing that we're going to see in the first and second quarter of this year is going to make any damn sense. And so, and, and these, these people, some of these stocks were down 80, 90%, okay, in the marketplace. So now what are you going to do differently, right? So how do you get, get your team back together, start looking at this from an opportunity standpoint, right? With all this carnage in the space, the person, the teams that can, can rapidly mobilize around a plan and start to execute that coming out the backside of this are going to have huge advantages of this. And you're seeing this in the technology space. The big technology companies that were already strong coming in are going to come out of this even stronger. And the ones that were weak uh, coming in are probably going to get either subsumed or go away. And so, and, and the advantage that the big ones have is they, they just have time and space to sort of think and say, all right, I can actually be aggressive in sort of attacking you know, th this marketplace, this environment. So I think it gets back to a leadership team. You've got to get the dupe aligned on a, on, a, on a vision, a set of goals, given the new circumstances. And I think it's important that you potentially revisit that plan um, almost weekly right now, uh, because you might say, hey, our strategy this week is different because so many conditions have changed. And you put yourself into that cadence where you start to basically get back to offensive-minded opportunities, because in any crisis, there's going to be incredible opportunities that emerge. And the organization that can see and can compartmentalize the pain and focus on where those opportunities are is going to unlock huge opportunities for itself. It's about who can um, make the action faster and make better decisions faster and adapt faster. So that's great. So we have uh, one more question, and then we'll go through Q and A. Dave, another thing people really want to know, uh, learn from you, is uh, how did you build how do you build trust in a crisis like this? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think the one advantage of crisis is that I, I think it, it takes these things like trust and makes it very binary. Right, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, the softer skills and how you do that, um, be, be, become less relevant during crisis because people tend to be to be you know more focused either internally or or uh, on some immediate problem at hand. And so, look, I, I think the old rule from a leadership perspective is back to that conviction idea. It, you know, is is just early and often, right? I think you got to be honest and truthful early and often throughout this process and keep people up to speed because the biggest the biggest destroyer of trust is uncertainty. Because as human beings, we have these incredible capacity to, to be creative and think uh, and, and, and do worst case scenarios. And if all you're seeing and hearing in the environment is negativity, right? And your entire social structure has been, been turned on its head, like we talked about earlier, uh, your family, your health, your, your work environment, then what you're looking for is like some, some like North Star to sit there and say, okay, that, that's, there's a current direction that, that seems to be stationary. Let me start navigating towards that and leaders have to be that north star during this they have to say look there's more unknown than known but you know here's what we do know now and as something changes i'll tell you and i'll tell you as quickly as possible so that we can all we, we you know we can all kind of figure out how to get through this 
together. And I, I think you got to be honest with people about what you know. So I think being a little vulnerable, um, being honest with people goes a long way towards building trust. I mean, look, unfortunately, leaders are being faced with some really tough decisions right now. Um, and, and a lot of them are just different shades of bad. And I think talking through those on a consistent basis uh, that makes sense, that isn't overwhelming to your team, will really help that team get confidence in that leader um, and in each other and help you sort of navigate through these trying times. So I would say early and often and, 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 just, and just be really transparent. I, I think that the, the worst sin is you can try to be overly optimistic or positive uh, during times of crisis when people don't have the capacity for that or they'll see through it and find it to be disingenuous. Um, only telling you know, parts of the story, not being sensitive to the fact that and acknowledge the fact that you know, people's lives have been upturned. And so you're talking from a position of like, well, you know, everything looks fine sitting at my place in you know, Menlo Atherton, um, sitting at home, right? It's, that's, it's, it's not the same reality that a lot of people are being faced with on a daily basis. So I, I think you've got to acknowledge that, you know, there's a whole lot of people that are in a lot of pain right now. There's a whole lot of people that are continuing to so march on and do work. And, you know, you, you got to sort of have to acknowledge that so you should show a little bit of empathy in it. But ultimately, I think it comes back to conviction and, and transparency. And if you have a, a rhythm that's picked up in pace and speed, it'll naturally give you that vehicle, that mechanism to kind of get your team moving. And as things look, as things start to settle down, you start to all of a sudden your your, your pattern recognition starts to pick back up again. Um, it'll be easier to say more definitively, okay, I can I can project past a week now. I can actually look at like three weeks or a month or even you know quarter on on where I see this thing evolving and how it's going. And so I just I think I think that's the approach you have to take as a leader. Thank you, Dave. Uh, there's also been a few examples and case studies or, or some cases that people have from their experience that would love for you to, to share some, some insights from the stuff that you talked about. So one, one specific case study that, that's been shared from our community is like right now we have, we have somebody who their company is right in the middle of trying to figure out product mar market fit in the, in the changing world. From some of the things that you've talked about, how would you apply some of those lessons towards like a company trying to figure out product market fit? Yeah, I mean, it's it, obviously it depends a lot on the product and and you know what the app date is, but it but it's I mean it's hard, right? I mean, if people are basically trying to compartmentalize and de and declutter uh, their their personal workspace, depending if it's a consumer product or not, and you're trying to introduce something new in the system, it's 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 probably going to be hard to kind of get that feedback you'd be accustomed to getting to try to navigate towards probably fit, part of market fit. But, but I, I go back to like, I, I don't think the fundamentals are different. I think you've got to test and learn and you've got to get your product into people's hands um, to get feedback. So I think you would still apply all the same principles. In fact, you might actually find, uh, you know, people trying to figure out how to make a little extra money. If you're willing to put some dollars behind it, you might find that you actually have a, a larger base that you could potentially, you know, leverage right now for getting feedback on answering people or maybe we're out of work or, 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 or looking for an extra dollar to make. So I, I think it comes back to that the fundamentals to figure out product market fit are still the same, right? You've got to be able to demonstrate that, you know, you're solving a problem consistently uh, that, that a user values um, and they're willing to um, incorporate that into their, their daily, monthly, weekly cadence, uh, you know, if it's a change or it's, it's enhancing, right? So to their daily cadence. So I, I think, I think you, gotta, you gotta stick to the same fundamentals and, and, and not get overly distracted by the situation. If you don't have the resources, then you got to get creative, right? You got you got to figure out how to do that with your network. Um, and you know, I, I think one of the one of the things that'll be interesting to look at coming out of this is the fact that everyone's working remote right now means that they're dying to, for some type of connections. And so if we if we can create connections 
uh, whether it's even like learning and, and, and you know, product samplings uh, right now, remote, you might actually be able to do that more efficiently, more effectively at scale than otherwise. I mean, they just, they did a, a like a concert. I can't remember who, which, which, which rapper it was, but you know, they, they, they had 12 million people uh, in this concert, uh, you know, and, and on one night to put that in perspective, Taylor Swift's tour in 2018 had 3 million people attend. So they had four times that in one night, just because of people are looking for something to do other than to read about, you know, COVID testing, right. And, or unemployment numbers. Right. So I, I think you'd probably find a willing employee base if you could figure out how to engage it. That's, that'd be my answer. Thank you. you. You shared some things that you've applied with your family about like how to, how within your own family to deal with uncertainty about like establishing an operating rhythm, shortening the, the like time that you focus on some things. Um, when people are dealing with having childcare, like the big uncertainty a lot of people are dealing with is like, when will childcare or schools in session come back? Do you have any insights or advice about how to apply some of these towards that uncertainty? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, my wife and I, we wait a little while to have children. So we've got two young kids, nine and six. And, um, you know, we both work full time and we're fortunate uh, to have um, a, a nanny that's been with us since our first kid. But for the first couple of weeks, uh, she was quarantined. So, you know, going from this adjustment, I'd say my productivity dropped by 80% that first week when I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to teach kids who, you know, don't really use a lot of screens and devices, how to use screens and devices, which is sort of counter to what our, our, our parenting philosophy. Um, and, and then also then try to, you know, advance them in like fourth grade math or something. Right. So, um, and my son, my six-year-old son, I mean, he thinks this is party time. He's like, this is the greatest thing ever happened to me. I can hang out with my dad. I can wrestle whenever I want. There's no barriers. Like, he's around all the time. But so so uh, it took some getting used to, I guess would be my point. We put it, we put the battery in the place. I, I found two things. One, one was I knew I needed to get them up every day and get them productive from, from start one because I knew some rigor and structure was going to be important to them. So like that battery, and the first thing that we did was, you know, everybody gets up and they do a, a little bit of a house cleaning. Uh, make their beds, brush their teeth, clean up, you know, whatever's out of place. And then we go out and we do boot camp every morning. Um, and I found that was important because it, it basically burns off some of that latent energy, kind of allows them to get some, you know, some wigglies out of their systems. So that when we start attacking the day, you know, around eight thirty, nine o'clock, you know, they're in a better mental state to sort of, sort of approach that. And we've made that part of their daily routine now. Uh, going forward. I, I think what's interesting is I think we're all figuring out on our own how to adapt to this this new norm. And the, I think that the key thing to be to keep in mind is you're not going to get it's nothing's gonna be perfect. So this whole idea you're gonna hold yourself to some standard that's analogous to what it was like before is just kind of nonsense. It's just it's just not realistic given the environment. So you got to do the best you can do. And I think you you start by breaking things into bite-side chunks and then you you know forgive yourself every day, try to figure out how you learn from it and then you know you know, apply to the next day. If we can't get the childcare system of this country, um, which is effectively the school systems, especially for middle-class and low-class families, back up and running, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to, ha to have people go back to work. So even if the, even if the, the office started back up, if the schools don't, I mean, I, and the camps don't, you know, I, I don't know how you expect a worker to do that. Now, the good news is, I think it's forcing some of these trends and dynamics that have been in place for a while now sort of come to the forefront. So a lot of the old school leadership style would be like, you got to be there. You got to, you know, basically punch a clock every day. If you're not, you're missing out. I think we're basically proving that we, you don't have to do that. Anymore. Like there's other ways to operate, be effective. And, and I think the, the potentially 
a byproduct of this could be a lot better or more flexible mindsets around work-life balance, which has you know scientifically been proven one to increase productivity, but two, keep some demographics of the work base engaged uh, for longer periods of time in in the workforce, right, and allow them to sort of come in and out as they see fit and still maintain productivity because they don't have the same rigorous standards. I mean, for people living in San Francisco, you know, having grown up out there, I mean, the traffic is awful, right? So the idea of not having to commute an hour and a half to and from and sit on you know a bar with all of your best friends every day, that, that seems appealing to me, right? That's, that's three hours of my day I just got back um, that I could probably reprioritize it, working out with my kids or, or you know, maybe cooking or something else um, or, or creativity innovation. So I, I, look, I just think, I think coming out of this, I, th- I do think it'd be important for people to, to be reflective. And on the childcare thing, I mean, let's hope schools go back in the fall. I mean, I know there's some discussion about this thing reemerging, but ultimately, you know, we got to collectively figure this thing out. Um, and, and, and figure out your balance. And just know that whatever you're doing, you know, as long as your kids are still healthy and breathing, and uh, and you're doing something to work, you're probably doing better than most, right? So just have a little have a little patience and confidence in yourself. So you talked a lot about decisiveness, and, and that being a really important part of a leader right now. So one of the the case study examples of where somebody's feeling uncertain right now is they might not necessarily be the the leader who is the one leading the decisiveness or taking the decisive action. So the challenge that they're running into is like their company's business is declining. So, and then their teams aren't seeing any new business pick up and they have no insight into the decisions of like whether or not they'll still have jobs. Uh, so for somebody who maybe is in like that middle, middle management position where they don't have a direct connection to the executive um, and have no insight to provide their teams, how, do you have any recommendations for insights to apply for, for that scenario? Yeah, it's a great question. It's super tough, right? There's no good answer to that question. I mean, um, going back to what I was saying before, if, you're, if your leadership group isn't being transparent and honest about what they're seeing, uh, it's just going to create a tremendous amount of anxiety for you as a mid-level manager on how you keep your team focused. So look, I mean, the easy thing to do is just to pass that anxiety straight through, right? You go like, I don't know, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Let's just do what we're going to do. And obviously, you're not really doing your part if you're doing that, right? So I would get back to what do you need to do? What makes you good at your job before still makes you good at your job now, right? The things you need to get done before probably still need to get done now, unless you've been given new guys for direction. So focus back on doing that and doing that well and trying to keep some of that anxiety that maybe you're hearing and picking from management, you know, kind of inoculate the rest of your team from that a little bit because it doesn't really help for you to be an amplifier. I mean, leaders, the best leaders, in my opinion, you know, are able to sort of force and extract the most um, inspiration and value out of their team and serve them in an effective way. And you're not, you're not doing your teammates any service by, you know, putting more anxiety or chaos into their lives. Their lives are crazy enough, right? So I would really go back to saying, all right, well, I'm going to focus on what I do know and how to do this well. And as things change uh, and think about it from a capabilities versus solution standpoint, like I'm going to maybe invest a little bit more on like some of these operating um, best practices to, to create, you know, think of it like physical fitness, better fitness for my group. So whereas we come out of it, we're going to be in better shape. You know, if, if you're starting to get the sense that like your organization is not going to navigate through this, then yeah, I do think you need, you need to, you need to, now you're kind of on the, the ship ship itself, you're on the self thing. So if you're the leader, I think you got to be looking out for these people and say, Hey, look, you should, you know, you should be active in the market right now, looking for other opportunities and um, you know, make sure that you, you know, you, you're able to help them with other references they need in order to do that. Um, as soon as possible in that process. I just think that's responsible. And if you're one of the individuals, I mean, I, I don't think it's inappropriate for you to 
to be, you know, making sure that you can provide for your family right now. I mean, that's that's critically important. But I think you got to weigh that against the three, though, right? So my, I guess my big my big recommendation would be if you're in uncertain times, I'll keep pushing your boss and leadership for information um, when and where they have it. I would I'd be a little empathetic to the fact that they don't know either, and that's you know they don't know is actually an answer. That's okay. Um, but you know you want to revisit it on a regular basis with them just so as things change, you know you're you're able to adapt as quickly as they are, and then. You know, you, you try to you try to keep your team focused on the tasks at hand and not worry too much about things that they can't control anyways, right? So it's just not productive time. Another popular question coming in has been about uh, morale. Because I think related to the, the topic you're talking about right now is like when people don't know, it's hard to feel good about what you're doing. So how, do you have any recommendations of applying a lot of these lessons towards like short-term or long-term morale within teams right now through uncertain times? Yeah, you know, in some sort of sick, sick twisted way, um, you know, and maybe it's just the training and conditioning. I love a good chaos, a little crisis. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a chance to really measure yourself against everybody else. And I have found that when you look around and people are losing their minds and you're feeling, I think I'm all right. Um, I get a lot of self-confidence from that, right? And so, you know, if you think about that for morale, I think that's, you know, calm, calm's infectious, right? If you're calm, with you and your team, it, it's infectious. They go, okay, well, he's not freaking out. So maybe I should be freaking out. Right. And I get back to saying, no, no, look, we still got some things to do. Let's do this. We'll knock these things out and you know, start creating small wins on a daily basis. And that people like to be on a winning team, right? They like to find like they're, what they're doing is successful and, and, and having an impact. So create opportunities to create small wins for your teams. And, you know, winning teams, you know, is usually the, the elixir for almost any morale issue you have in my, in my experience. So I would get back to that compartmentalization piece, create short-term near achievable objectives and start knocking those things out on a regular basis and, you know, and celebrate some of those wins. I mean, celebrate, take some time on a daily, weekly basis. Hey, that's, that was great. It's awesome. We're, you know, we're, we're going to keep moving forward. Um, and look, if you do that consistently, you're going to come out of this stronger than before. I mean, I, I, I'm confident in that whether it's at the same company or a new one, you know, we are a resilient species. Uh, we are, we are mentally much stronger and more capable than, than uh, most people give us credit for. And, you know, while this is scary, uh, and I get it scary, like, I, I have strong conviction that we're going to come out of this as, as a team, as a nation, as a, as a global community, stronger and better than before. I mean that. I think, I think we will. So I think you got to, you know, figure out how to do your part in that. And, 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 and stop, you know, don't focus on the negativity. If you find yourself being amplified for that, you got to stop it, right? I mean, it's just not, it's just not productive, you know, focus on, on, on driving the task at hand and on, on what are these key lessons and learning and the positivity is coming out of the environment. Cause there's going to be a lot of positive stuff. Um, Absolutely. Well, I think one of the things I've appreciated through, throughout the whole talk is the focus on giving people a sense of progress and a sense of accomplishment with everything going on. And, and that, in that experience of feeling progress, creates certainty within the umbrella of uncertainty that's going on. Yeah. And if you're an introvert, this social distancing thing is awesome, right? It's like, <laughs> I talked to my college roommate. He's like a wrestler, team captain, team Navy SEAL, total bad, a bad man. And uh, he's like, Hey, I've been practicing social distancing for 45 years. This is great. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> so I don't, it's like, I don't need to see anybody. So <laughs> he was like, I have my family. That's all I need. Um, so, I mean, look, there's, there's pros in all this. I, I love the, uh, the, um, some good news thing that John Kurgansky is doing. I, I find that to be super funny and, and, and inspiring. That's great. So to dive in, I guess, more specifically to like morale, I think the other thing is people are trying to replicate and create trust and camaraderie uh, 
oftentimes navigating remote remote now for for the first time. Do you have any insight about like recreating the the trust and camaraderie of anything that maybe you haven't shared yet? Well, I find the best way to build camaraderie is during a crisis because you kind of see people's true colors, right? And, 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 and you have this stressful condition that takes what would otherwise be, you know, sort of loose and you apply heat and pressure and all of a sudden you, you forge something really strong out of it, right? Now you might lose some people in the process, but, you know, but, you know, the, the brothers I graduated SEAL training with, the people that I was in a platoon with, that I went to combat with, I mean, those, those are really tough, hard times and our relationships are closer than they've ever been before. So I just think it's important if, if you and your team you got to figure out how to like really reinforce that cadence and use this crisis as an opportunity to really forge um, and focus the group on the things that matter. The nice thing in a crisis is like the stuff that doesn't matter tends to get easily dis- dis- discarded. Like this stuff is I- irrelevant right now. Let's just stop doing it. Right. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that you could probably stop doing or have already stopped doing because it just isn't relevant in this current credit phase. Now the question is now coming out, maybe you never have to do that ever again. But all that extra time should focus the group on how they're working together. So, if, again, if you're applying those those principles we already discussed around how you you know you you set an operating cadence for yourself, how you set it for your team, which is forcing those more touch points around you know real challenges. I find when you come out of that, you've you've sort of been through the fire. You kind of deal with anything, and it you know it's you're, you'll probably you'll be looking back on this 20, 30 years from now, talking about what it was like working with you know John and Jess and you know. Barrett and whoever else and say, yeah, you know, we, we went through some tough times. We, we made it through it as a group and we were better, stronger coming out of it. Right. So I, I think this is a great time on camaraderie. Um, and you're going to be naturally forced to be solving problems on a daily basis. And I think the key is how do you keep your team cool and collected and focused on, on the problem and the solution um, and reinforcing the, making sure the capabilities are being built and worked vice, you know, the negativity. Do you have any any additional strategies that you used in in the seals to deal with cross team or cross organization negotiations or or issues? Yeah, you know the, the hardest thing in any negotiation or issue cross team is just getting people to see uh, and understand other people's perspectives. Um, you know, our basic thesis at Crosslead is the world is interconnected in ways that you sometimes aren't intuitive, and what could be perceived as a conflict might actually be a, a compliment if you can put yourselves and sit in those shoes. So if you find yourself in, in some type of conflict with another team or you're having consternation of any type of friction, you know, my recommendation was spend time actively listening to your counterparty and trying to understand where they're coming from in their perspective. And if it's, if it's just basic anxiety and like, you know, fixed mindset around specific problems, then you can say, all right, well, let me help you kind of look at it the way I'm seeing it and kind of grow out of it. Or if it's a genuine concern, say, oh, I had not thought of that. I need to reimagine how I'm approaching this problem set now that I understand better how you are approaching the mindset. I think it goes a long way. But it really comes back to like just empathy, right? Like, you know, when you can walk in somebody else's shoes, you tend to understand and realize that, you know, a lot of the things that, are, the, the, a lot of the ways they're approaching that problem are probably more rational than you realized. Right? We tend to think when they, they don't agree with you, they're, they're acting irrationally. Well, that's not usually the case. Yeah, usually humans act pretty rationally if you actually get to the underlying issue. It may not be the thing you're talking about that's causing an issue, by the way, which is why I think it's important to invest the time to say, hey, if we're having conflict, let me seek to understand first what's going on here. Let me go talk and say, help me understand where you guys are coming at. And don't lead the witness with, because I don't, and, you know, or I see it. Just say, no, I really just want to understand you know, your guy's position on this um, and then we can figure out if we can find some common ground, start working forward. I, I just, I think that goes 
a long way in peace and wartime, by the way. Like, I, I think it's, you, you got to find that time if you've got a caution. Now, if in, 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 in a crisis situation, if you have a mandate where you can say, shut up in color, maybe you don't have the luxury of doing that right then. You say, oh, this, but you're going to want to circle back at some point to make sure that you connect the dots for them on like why and how and the rest of it, or you're going to, you're probably going to get one or two, you know, you know bites of that apple um, is my experience, right? Um, they'll follow you if they're taking artillery fire, but the moment the artillery fire is up, they're out, right? So, you know, I, I still think you got to practice good active listening uh, and seek to understand uh, their perspectives. And, and look, it's like I said, it's, it's crazy times out there. It has been for a little while now. So, you know, everybody's got different issues, right? They might have a family member who's, who's vulnerable or sick, uh, you know, or a kid with some type of underlying condition or disability. They, they might have multiple kids and, 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 and no help at all that they can deal with. Maybe they rely on their parents or maybe they rely on, you know, a daycare, all that's been disrupted. So everyone's, everyone's going through hard times. So figure out where they are on that spectrum and then try to give them some clear guidance and direction, or, or in this case, some relief to help them sort of figure out how to get back to some type of like small incremental wins. Right. That's, that's, you know, sort of fundamentals of agile actually, like, you know, you know, launch product as quickly as possible, get feedback, show small wins, build off those wins, and you're going to end up in a good place. That is all the time that we have for, for questions. Dave, thank you so much. Awesome. All right. Thanks guys. Appreciate your time. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.